I think everyone knows Heineken. I would say it's, it's the most international brewer company on the planet. Probably if you are anywhere in the world, you're gonna find one of the brands. It's almost 300 brands. We believe that ERP carries a foundational role, almost like the center of the, the key transactions or, or the heart of the company, but it doesn't need to be so big. We believe it has to be single and it has to be unique. We're gonna have surrounding that ERP a set of what we call business platforms. I believe there are two types of metaverses. There's already a universe electronically where we represent my data, your data is already present in the universe. And then there's a second kind, which is completely different. And this is what is now becoming much more evident and, and because the technology is converging. I wouldn't say we're gonna live in the metaverse, but I think the metaverse will be something that we will spend some time. This is Sierra TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Breno Gentil, who is the Senior Director, Digital and Technology uh, Europe, for Heineken, a very warm welcome, Breno. Thank you, Hendrik. Very happy to be here with you today. Breno, you have a master in design and computer engineering from the Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. You have an MBA from the Fundação Dom Cabral. You worked at Mondelez, at Reader's Digest, and 15 years at BAT, where your last position was that of CTO. And you joined Heineken in January 2022 in the position of CIO for Europe. So, Breno, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Who are you really? What's your background? And how did you arrive in this position? Yeah, very happy to. And uh, that's a very accurate summary. So, I, I like to say that I'm, I'm a Brazilian, living in London, mm -hmm. and now working for mm -hmm. a Dutch uh, global organization. Uh, but mm -hmm. moving maybe a few years uh, uh, back, my, my career in technology actually, or, or technology in my life actually started pretty young. Mm -hmm. And this was when mm -hmm. I was between my 10, 15 years old, my father came home with an apple tree, uh, you know, the old apple tree computer. Okay. And uh, so he brought home and he, uh, he showed me, he learned how to use it, uh, uh, he helped me to code in basic, and, and that became a passion for me. From that point onwards, uh, technology was always part of my life. Uh, fast forward, I graduated, as you said, in computer engineering. Uh, a few years later, mm -hmm. I did a master in design, but it's still related to technology. My, the subject of my master was uh, Second Life, which back then was the, this uh, virtual environment. <laughs> the word metaverse was not used but it was the early days of, of the metaverse, uh, and, and I was attracted to, to uh, learning about the interaction of people and technology in, in 3D and uh, these virtual environments. Later on, as you said, I did my MBA, and in terms of professional experience, uh, my, my jobs actually, while I was still in university, were uh, in 3D computer graphics. Uh, so I was still studying okay. and part-time I was uh, uh, giving classes and helping to sell or, or install softwares related to computer graphics. Uh, some of them called mm -hmm. uh, 3D Studio, AutoCAD, and that was my part-time job while I was still in university. Uh, my first global organization job started in uh, 1996 uh, and this was Reader's mm -hmm. Digest. Uh, and and I'm, I think it was a privilege that I had to, to work in that company because it was like working in a startup. 
Uh, Reader's Digest was already a global organization, but they had zero presence in Brazil. And when they came back, uh, okay. I joined the organization. I was employee number five uh, as a student intern. I stayed there for seven years. In two years, the company went from five to 100 people. Uh, and for me, it was the experience of doing everything from, uh, from assembling furniture to setting up infrastructure to helping develop some of the systems. I, I grew together with the company. Uh, at some point in time, I became the head of IT. And it's, it has uh, shaped a lot of who I am as a profession because of that beginning of experience. Uh, later on, I, I joined uh, uh, Mondelez or Kraft Foods. They, they changed the name in Brazil. And this was uh, my, my experience in a fast move, my first experience in a fast moving consumer goods organization uh, with factories, yep. with distribution, with selling, with the multi products. It was a super experience. Uh, and then a few years later, as you mentioned, I came BAT. And BAT uh, is where my international career uh, actually happened. I started in Brazil in BAT. Mm -hmm. I did local roles. A few years later, I did regional roles. Uh, I came to live in London, where the headquarters are, uh, first in 2013. Uh, came back to Brazil. Mm -hmm. And then 2017, came back again. Uh, and I did a number of different roles, as you mentioned. I've done uh, regional CIO at BAT, I've done uh, leading global programs, uh, and the last role I had uh, there was a global CTO uh, involved in things like uh, uh, digital innovation, data analytics, uh, enterprise architecture, and, and a few others. And then, more recently, January, I joined Heineken, um, and uh, uh, mm -hmm. it's you know early days. I'm, I'm four months uh, in the organization with the role of uh, the, uh, the director for the Europe region, so I'm fully accountable for IT there. And I was super attracted by first the the, the culture of the organization, the people-centric culture of Heineken. Second, the the ambitions of transformation, which are super bold and super exciting. And uh, and obviously, uh, I'm a fan of the uh, brands and, and the beer. Thank you for that great uh, introduction, uh, Breno. It's uh, interesting that you started your career and that you were excited about uh, a second life. And, uh, and, and the, so what's your take on Metaverse today? Is this gonna, are we gonna really gonna live in a virtual world very soon? What's, what's your view on this? I, I believe that we, we probably, we can almost say that there are I believe there are probably two types of metaverses, uh, and one of them we already mm -hmm. exist. We just don't say it. Uh, my data, your data, probably is already captured. If you have a, a watch that is an electronic watch, your data is captured, uh, our data is captured. So we probably already exist uh, as individuals in, out there in the cloud, even if we don't mm -hmm. get it. So I believe there's already a, a, a universe electronically where we represent, like it or not. Obviously, there's the, all the privacy, which is a growing thing, but our data is already present in the universe. And then there's a second kind, which is probably more what the metaverse is talking about, which is where we can exist, but not necessarily as we are. And we can take the persona of a different, completely different. We can you know, be whatever we want. And, and this is what is now becoming much more evident. And, and because the technology is converging, high-speed networks, connections, high processing uh, uh, devices, 
uh, and the, the, the gaming industry. So combining all of that, uh, I, I think, I wouldn't say we're going to live in the metaverse, but I think the metaverse will be something that mm -hmm. we will spend some time. And when I look at my kids and how much time they spend in their own virtual environments, I think this generation will, will eventually spend a lot of their time in a parallel universe where they can be whatever they want. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, Heineken. So can you describe a little bit the company? Of course, we know the Heineken brand and the beer and so on, but it's, it's more than just this one beer. So describe a little bit the, uh, the business of Heineken today. So yeah, I think everyone knows, uh, knows Heineken. Uh, I would say it's, it's the most international brewer company on the planet. So probably if you are anywhere in the world, you're going to find one of the brands. It's almost 300 brands that we have across the world. Uh, we also have all the types of drinks like ciders. Uh, and and the, uh, part of the strategy of the company is to continue to stretch the category. Uh, you probably will, will have seen in, in a few countries uh, uh, non-alcohol or, or close to zero alcohol like Heineken Zero Zero. So innovation is, is, is accelerating in the beer industry a lot. So it's, it's uh, the number of brands and, and the number of, of products that you can consume from Heineken, it's huge and it's present across many places of the world. Okay, and what are the, what are the main business challenges that, that Heineken is facing? What is Heineken really focusing on today? And, and then we can see how that translates in your digital and technology strategy. So yeah, so Heineken uh, is, a, is a growth organization. So growing the business, in a sustainable way is, is obviously one of the priorities and is, as well as a challenge. So growing that business and generating long-term value uh, is definitely one of our goals and is a challenge. But it's an environment uh, and our environment uh, which is still recovering from the pandemic. Uh, so there has been a great mm -hmm. year uh, in 2021, but there is still more to complete the recovery. And we see ahead because of the, the scenario that we are today uh, inflation as a pressure coming to our business. So that's, that's, that's mm -hmm. a challenge that we have ahead of us. Heineken has a, a strategy, which is a company-wide strategy, uh, spent across all the functions, all our countries, which we call Evergreen. And Evergreen has a few mm -hmm. key pillars on that strategy, which also includes digital and technology. I'll, I'll leave digital and technology for last, but the, 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 these pillars are, first of all, as I said, growth, and the growth is through uh, stretching uh, the beer category and going with different drinks and uh, bringing innovation uh, as part of our products. Uh, second is about our cost and value, which is looking at our cost base, mm -hmm. uh, finding the opportunities to simplify our business, to streamline our business. Uh, third is our uh, environmental and social responsibility. We have uh, targets and bold mm -hmm. targets to become uh, for example, uh, net uh, uh, zero in all of our supply chain by 2040. Uh, we also have both targets in terms of social responsibility, uh, targets in terms of promoting the moderation and consumption in a responsible way of our products. Uh, we have the part of the people. So the company, as I said, has an amazing culture, people-centric culture. We see opportunities in terms of uh, um, becoming more agile, fast and courageous in decision making, uh, using agile across all the company uh, and, and continue to improve on diversity. And as I said, last but definitely not least, digital technology is one of the evergreen company-wide uh, strategies. Uh, 
And, and what for us evergreen means in digital technologies are a few opportunities where we believe uh, that digital technology can play a big role. Uh, starting with what we call mm -hmm. digitizing our route to consumer or even our route to customer. This is about how we bring our products from the, uh, uh, from the point that they are ready up to the hands of our consumer in a pub, in a bar, in a supermarket, whatever. We have different types of, of reaching to the consumer and we can digitize it so we can make the experience of customers and consumers to be the best possible when they interact with them so they can order our products, they can have our products anytime, anywhere they are. Another pillar of the digital and technology strategy of Evergreen is uh, supporting uh, automation and streamlining our processes. Uh, we believe that there are lots of opportunities where we can simplify and also automate processes. And we have seen examples of this in uh, supply chain. We have examples of this in finance. And, and we are scratching the surface and that there's many more that we can bring in that aspect. The uh, data analytics is definitely another pillar of, of the digital technology opportunities. Uh, we believe we have lots of data. We have opportunities to better harmonize the data and translate that into foresights, into decision-making support, into prescriptive, into predictive analytics. And the uh, opportunities of value are huge. And we are starting to see some of them come mm -hmm. to life. Uh, then we have uh, what we call our digital backbone, which is, uh, in, in, in other words, a, a, the modern architecture of our ERP plus our digital platforms, which is going to enable what we call the creation of digital products. And, and that is part of what we call of our digital backbone, which is a very strong transformation we are going through. Uh, and last but not least, in the, uh, in the side of uh, people and culture, uh, we also are driving agile ways of working, uh, digital literacy of everyone in the company, uh, and obviously also as well the diversity. Okay. Now before we jump, because that's the main topic that I want to discuss with you, is, is, is your strategy around uh, your core ERP and, and the business platforms around that. You triggered my interest there. You said that data and AI are becoming more and more important as well. Could you give an example of maybe one of the coolest things that you're doing with, uh, with the AI nowadays? Look, the, uh, uh, I believe the, uh, the probably the coolest thing that we can th think of is uh, uh, we call suggested or the quantity. So part of any consumer goods company is, uh, is uh, trying to uh, uh, suggest for our customers what should be, how many beers should you bring to your pub? Uh, or how many products should you have in your inventory. And it's a combination of very different factors. It's the consumption or the demand and many things. And um, in many companies, this is done manually to people. But when we start to, to use data and the history of this and start to suggest, the interesting thing or the exciting uh, is that it starts to become more accurate than our human uh, aspects. And I, I find this, it's simple, but it's super amazing. That triggers me. We had a discussion just yesterday with people from Carrefour and they're, they're focusing on, on similar things, of course. And I can imagine that you're working with the retailers to optimize the inventory and, 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 and because your, uh, your products are very dependent on weather and, and, and special occasions and so on and so on. So very cool. Let's focus on, on, uh, on the digital core of, uh, of your strategy. Uh, so you talked about ERP, about the other um, 
business platforms and about digital products. Let's maybe take them one by one. Let's, let's first talk about your, your ERP. What's the situation today of your ERP landscape and where are you going to? Can you paint sure. that picture, please? Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, look, at Heineken, we, we, we have a, uh, quite a fragmented ERP landscape today. We have a number mm -hmm. of, of very different ERPs, which are local. Uh, different countries having their own ERPs. Uh, some of them are more modern, yeah. some of them are, are older. Uh, and, and quite frankly, they probably are, were designed to do a lot of things, a lot of things inside the ERP. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, that's why we are, we are today and uh, where we are going to is that we, we believe that ERP is still a super important part of any digital uh, backbone of any organization, but not as big mm -hmm. as it was in the past. Uh, we believe that ERP carries a, a foundational role, almost like the center of the, the key transactions or, or the heart of the company will, be, uh, will exist, uh, will be supported. But mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't need to be so big. We believe it has to be single and it has to be unique. Uh, so all of our countries will be in a single ERP. We call a lean ERP, uh, very modern, in the cloud, mm -hmm. uh, harmonized data, harmonized processes. And we're going to have surrounding that ERP a set of what we call business platforms and modern business platforms, which will be yeah. Uh, specific to, mm -hmm. to different business functions. So supply chain could have business platforms like SNOP or transportation management. Uh, a, a sales and distribution organization uh, can have uh, platforms like Salesforce for CRM. Uh, and that continues. Uh, HR, you can have human capital platforms. So those are platforms that uh, yeah. they will be connected and integrated to the ERP which, by the way, needs a modern way of integration, which is not point-to-point -point integration. It's uh, much more driven by API mm -hmm. and microservices. Uh, and that gives a bit of the flexibility that, because we have different business with different capabilities required, that you, you, you have the ERP, but the business platforms, they can be different uh, depending on our countries. So it's yeah. almost like having different archetypes. And, and the other part of that whole architecture, that modern architecture, is that the platforms, because they are modern, because they are in the cloud, they enable uh, what we call digital products to be developed. So if we use the example of a CRM, mm -hmm. a CRM will allow you to develop a uh, ordering digital product. We will enable to uh, create a digital app to be used by our uh, retailers or to our reps. And, and that is some of the flexibility that we believe will bring the best balance between uh, uh, consistency and autonomy uh, yep. for speed. Okay, so you're you're at the start, let's say, or at uh, of of a big uh, SAP in the cloud implementation. That's it's almost like a greenfield uh, integrating all these fragmented things that are out there. So your goal is one SAP in the cloud for the core uh, ERP functions, right? Correct. Correct. Using the name that we said okay. in the beginning, Evergreen. <laughs> I mean, that's that's quite a program. So, so what's the time frame for that, and 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 what are the different steps that you have planned for that? It is. This this is a multi-year program. Uh, it's complex because you have mm -hmm. to to uh, choose the right sequencing 
of how do you bring the ERP as well as the platforms. Not everything is ready. A lot of those platforms and even the ERP is being developed uh, at the moment. So we, we believe this is a time frame of about five years for that transformation to happen. Uh, without obviously uh, everything will happen while we, we keep the business running and growing and transforming itself as well. Some of these platforms uh, are already starting to become a reality even before the ERP changes, mm -hmm. because they bring so much value. First, uh, supply chain is an example. We have opportunities in supply chain that we already can bring, like a, put a transportation management platform, even ahead of our ERP, mm -hmm. is already bringing us a lot of benefits. So the coordination is yeah. one of the most complex part of, of that journey, but it's a multi-year, broadly around five-year journey. Okay, and, and what is your, your, your cloud strategy, I mean, you mean you, you're moving your ERP to the cloud, your CRM is going to the cloud. Do you have a 100% cloud strategy or, or will you, uh, and, and where do you think you will get there? Or, or, or is your strategy a hybrid cloud? You will still have on-prem on installations of, of some applications? Uh, I, I would say, you know, maybe we, you know, some people use the word cloud first. I think cloud first is definitely where we are heading to, uh, but maybe not cloud always. Mm -hmm or maybe until today, not cloud always, because there are some use cases where are still either not uh, the best business case uh, or not technically possible, particularly in, in organizations yep. like, like Heineken, we have breweries or different uh, operations that are the last mile is still so, so critical and so, so specific that at least right now, there isn't a cost beneficial or ideal technical solution. There might be. And in the case, we will review But I would say it's cloud first, but probably not cloud 100% yet. So, Brenda, we talked about uh, your ERP strategy, which is a huge and a very important program. We talked about uh, your uh, cloud strategy, which is going to be cloud first uh, before it maybe one day becomes a, a cloud only strategy. Let's also talk a little bit about uh, the business platforms. How yep. do you make the selections of, of, of the business platforms? How do you make sure that they integrate, they work well together? Um, and isn't it possible to just put everything in one ERP? Uh, well, I'll, I'll start with the, with the last part. I think everything in the ERP is, is where uh, probably a lot of organizations were in the past. And uh, uh -huh. the, the ERP technology and the architecture is, is also changing. SAP is, doing a, is, a, is also much, pretty much aware of that trend. But if you look at ERPs mm -hmm. uh, uh, that exist in majority of the implementations, they are difficult to change. They are very, let's say, tightly coupled together. Uh, and and uh, the mm -hmm. more you put features or functionalities inside that uh, tightly coupled, we'd sometimes say it creates this uh, very difficult spaghetti of things, which you, you, you try to take one and then you can mess up with the other parts. Uh, and that's where uh, the uh, adoption of cloud platforms uh, with a modern integration between them creates the idea of assembling Legos uh, because you have standard pieces that you can combine, assemble and disassemble uh, with obviously harmonized data and that brings flexibility. Uh, as well. I think the other trend is that uh, companies, and, and there are very advanced companies uh, bringing business platforms, and uh, some of them are so good in what they do that rather than picking a mm -hmm. single company that can promise you to do everything, 
uh, you actually can pick a very niche specific business platform because it, they have probably used the best adoption of AI models or the best features. And, and that's our examples of transportation management, uh, SNOP, demand and supply planning, CRM. So can, for example, Salesforce do everything? Probably no, and they don't want to, but they are super good in, yeah. in what they do. Uh, and you can say the same about different companies. So uh, what, what we try to do is to obviously balance uh, what are the, the business features that these platforms bring to us? Yeah. What is the differentiating factor that they bring to us? Uh, obviously combined yeah. with their cost, the cost model, because uh, uh, cloud platforms uh, are not cheap. Uh, the, the costing model is, is dynamic, is by consumption. The more you use, the more you pay. That is good, but it can also be a watch out if you don't, if you don't plan enough. So in, in a nutshell, it's, it's a, a lot about what these business platforms do and how do they best meet our business challenges versus uh, how I, uh, how, what is their affordability for our business. So it's SAP at the core and then Salesforce, I understood Azure for BI and then you, you told me Blue Yonder and, and some other specialized uh, platforms for, for specialized applications. Yeah, Blue Yonder is and an example. And then you built a third, yeah, I, uh, and, and then you build a third layer on top of that, of what you call digital products. Explain that me a little bit more. What, what, what are the, give me a couple of examples of these uh, digital products, please. Maybe I'll pick a, another example of a digital platform, which is RPA, which is very much uh, being, being discussed today. RPA, yep. uh, Robotics uh, Process Automation, is a platform. Uh, and and the, uh, as a platform, uh, it's not that difficult to, to put in place, to integrate to your RPs. And then what it enables is you can create bots. And each bot is a, a concept of a digital product. You and me, if you want, we can create a, a, a bot to automate a process with uh, no coding if we want to. If it's a more complicated process or a back office process, you can create uh, with coding. Uh, but that's an example of, of, uh, of a digital product. Another is uh, in data analytics. Yep. Uh, the data analytics platforms brings the data, bring all of the analytics engines, but what you build on top of those platforms, which will be, for example, a uh, analytics AI uh, machine learning model to predict the best order quantity, this is a digital product. This can be built by data scientists, this can be built by data experts, uh, and the idea of creating those digital products on a platform that is, uh, has a standard and harmonized data is that I can create a great product, let's say in, in the UK, and my country, for example, in France, might be able to reuse it, adapt it a little bit, but very fast replicate it and reapply. And that is, but all of within a framework of consistent data, consistent process. So, so it's the idea like a, f a freedom in a box, you might say. Okay, so you're really on, on, on this road uh, to, to modernize your complete application stack. Uh, and, and that I can imagine that also then is very important that, um, because that will allow you to do more innovation and, and, and to be more flexible and more agile. So having the right uh, standards, uh, platforms, knitting them together, the right strategy, it's really the foundation for innovation. Do you agree with that? Yeah, correct, correct. And the, uh, I think it brings an aspect which for me is one of the most important, which is the speed. 
Because this, mm -hmm. all of this, it's, uh, you know, it requires investment. And for me, one of the key values that we get out of that standardization uh, and, and giving some freedom uh, with uh, the consistency is, is the speed. Uh, because you can actually yeah. uh, do something in one place. And for global organizations uh, like Heineken, you don't need to reinvent the wheel elsewhere. You can quickly come and reapply. It's, you know, in, in the industry of, of the uh, automobiles, uh, you, you, you know, some people don't know, but a uh, uh, Audi, a uh, Volks, and I think uh, uh, even a, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a Porsche, they are in the same platform. The, the chassis is the same, but what you put on top is different. And, and that creates a lot of agility. It, it's similar to what we are trying to do. I think that gives us a very nice view on, 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 on your plans, on your strategy uh, for, uh, for the standard platforms, innovation and so on. So let's talk a little bit more about your organization. Yep. So can you give us some, some, maybe some numbers to start with? How big is Heineken in, 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 in global? How big is IT? How, how big is European IT? So that we have a bit of a... And then within your European IT, how is, how is that organized? Sure. So Heineken is, uh, uh, follows a model of having uh, a lot of, of empowerment to what we call operating companies. And operating companies are mm -hmm. business units or the countries. Uh, and, and this is, you know, we are a company of a, more than 150 years of legacy. It's a family company. So it's a company that looks, uh, you know, in, in generations. So we like to say that we, are, uh, uh, we, we don't own the business. We are you know, custodians of a business, so we want to live for the next generation in a much better uh, uh, business than what we got to ourselves. Uh, and that entrepreneurial spirit mm -hmm. reflects a lot into the culture. So our business units or the operating companies, they carry a lot of, of empowerment, uh, but coordinated by uh, the strategy that comes from, from, from our headquarters, from our center. So the and IT in Heineken mm -hmm. follows, follows that model. We have a central IT, uh, which has, uh, it's broadly based out of the headquarters in Amsterdam, but as well as our hub in mm -hmm. Krakow. Uh, and it's accountable for strategy, for developing and offering uh, these global platforms. Uh, and then we have in the, uh, uh, my role, which is uh, in the region, we have four big regions. The regions are how all of these operating companies are grouped together, so we are grouped all of these operating companies into four regions. I lead IT for the European region. Uh, to give a sense of numbers, in, in Europe, uh, IT is almost about uh, 500 people. Uh, and all of them are organized, I would say 98% of them, are located in each of the countries or the operating companies that they belong to. They all of them have a, a head of IT or IT manager or IT director that is... Uh, part of, which is my leadership team. Uh, we have bigger companies yeah. and we have other smaller ones. Uh, and uh, uh, we, we collaborate, it's a matrix organization, we collaborate with the central IT teams to uh, use the strategy, to uh, fine tune the strategy, but to implement the strategy broadly. Uh, we use the solutions, we influence to, uh, the solutions to fit our business in the region. Uh, and very importantly, uh, myself and, and everyone from that, that reports to me, we also belong to the business. So I also report to the uh, regional president of Europe uh, to make sure that I am 
part of the business, that I understand what the European business is going to, what are the challenges, how can I help, how can I influence, how can I support. And in my team, they also belong in their own countries to their management teams. Uh, they report also to the uh, managing director or general manager. And that creates this uh, very uh, strong uh, embedding of IT in the business, which, which is a fundamental part. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a challenge because you have to balance your time and, and, your, and your focus in a lot of different things, but it brings the, the uh, inclusiveness of IT into the business that I find really super important. You said that in the Evergreen program, agility is one of the key pillars. And, I, and, and that, that also translates in your digital and technology strategy. So tell me a little bit on, uh, on agile way of working and so on. Where is Heineken in, in, uh, in, in, that, uh, in that road, in that scenario? How far are you already developed on that level? The, the, the agile journey of Heineken has started, has started a few years ago. Uh, and it, it is progressing mm -hmm. well. It has uh, a, a very strong agile uh, way of working organization, particularly in our central IT teams, uh, with you know lots mm -hmm. of of, uh, uh, of teams which are fully operating in agile way. Uh, we have also in mm -hmm. our operating companies a few of them which are also operating in agile, uh, but there are still opportunities to span that across all the functions and all the countries. Yep. Uh, and making sure that it's, it's something that is coordinated across central and, and, uh, and, and countries uh, fully well connected. Yep. So I, I see this is something that is progressing uh, very well, but it is a lot still to be done. And do you believe that Agile can be applied to everything, to also to infrastructure, to ERP, or is it, is it only more in the app side and the development side? Do you see that it's maybe not the, the one thing that fits every, every different part of the, the IT organization? I, I believe it can. I believe it can, but there's an important thing that which is, and for me is a learning of Agile, is you, you should not focus on the process itself, but on the mindset mm -hmm. and on the Agile principles. The, the mindset is right, if the principles are followed, it's okay to adapt the Agile process a bit. So sometimes people come to me and say, oh, we're going to follow process A, B, C, D, D. I'm less worried about the process itself. I'm more worried about the mindset, the culture, and the outcomes that we generate. Mm -hmm. And uh, for that reason, I believe it can be applied to uh, you know, probably to almost anything. So Bruno, let's talk a little bit more about your role. You're the uh, CIO for Europe. Um, where do you spend most of your time uh, today? And how do you see that evolve uh, into the uh, into future? I, I divide my time today in three categories. Uh, first is, mm -hmm. uh, as I mentioned, I'm part of the European business leadership. So I spend a lot of my time understanding, participating, and discussing where our business is going to, what are the challenges, what are the opportunities. Mm -hmm. Because for me, is is the place where I can do two things. One is I can bring the opportunities where digital and technology can uh, have a role, can have an impact, a positive impact. And it's also how I should uh, uh, understand what is the, uh, my region doing. So when I bring into my global IT organization, I can influence the strategy to be the best one that fits to my region. So I spend a lot of time in this first category. Uh, the second one mm -hmm. is, uh, as I mentioned, in the global DNT, which I'm also part of the leadership of global DNT, I help to shape the strategy. I help to adjust where it needs to. Mm -hmm. I help to. Uh, 
make sure that the European region is represented. So sometimes there are things which are for the business very particular to the European business. I'll give an example. Uh, in UK, uh, Heineken owns a pub business, uh, and, and that is a different business yeah. model. We have a business of wholesaler, which is also very strong in Europe. So it's important that I can bring that perspective of how important those things are, and also what are the business priorities, because even if we like to do everything, there's also a, a, a limited capacity that we can do things. It is important to keep the focus. Uh, we, we, in the Europe, we like to say our priorities are called nothing more, nothing less, because focus is so, so important to, to deliver what we need to deliver. And, and there's a third category, which is myself and my own team. So it's my time coaching, leading them, empowering them in each of their opcos to deliver what we need to deliver in a consistent way following the strategies, but sometimes helping them uh, when they have an issue, where they have a risk, uh, you know, helping them to develop, and, and doing this together. For me, it, it's the start of a journey because I'm four months in this role. Uh, so for example, with my team, uh, one month ago, we were all together in Milan. We did our first off-site team meeting. We agreed together what is our team contract, how we're going to work together. So those are the three uh, let's say buckets where I spend my time and I try to balance probably equally my time between these three ones. Uh, and there's a fourth one which uh, I'm still not dedicating today uh, but I probably will start doing a bit more in the second half which is bringing outside in perspectives inside to, to Heineken. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is an important part of any IT professional. You have to be connected to what is happening to the outside world speaking with startups, speaking yeah. with you know, uh, folks uh, that are really experts, connecting with CIOnet and others. I think this is a super important way so you can always see what's changing outside and you can bring the best ideas uh, inside to Heineken. But I'm still not being able to fully put my time in there, but it will, it will increase uh, uh, as we go along. Okay. So, Benno, let's talk a little bit more about your, uh, you managing and coaching your teams. So could you give an example of, of, of what is your management style? How do you make sure that the people that you work with, that they are successful? Sure. So I, I, first of all, I, I like to be inclusive. Why? Because I believe that in a team, everyone has a, a, a role to play or they have a special talent or a gift. And, and part of our role as a leader, part of my role as a leader, as I, as I believe, is to give the space, is to surface that, is to make sure that you in the team, you can be who you are, you can actually bring your best. So inclusiveness in a team for me is, uh, is super important, especially when you manage a team that has uh, different people with different cultures from different countries. So aware, being aware of those uh, different styles is, is important. A second uh, part of my style is I focus a lot on communicating a purpose, communicating the why, uh, communicating why are we doing what we need to do? Why do we need to follow a specific strategies? And uh, the reason I like to do this is because particular IT is always in the center of transformations, like in Heineken. But to transform, mm -hmm. it's important that people understand the why, else it's very difficult to be engaged. So I, I, I use communication a lot. I like to communicate frequently. I like to communicate uh, in a simple way to my team. And I focus a lot on, on, mm -hmm. on giving the purpose so everyone are, are part of this. And, and maybe the last 
part of my style is, is I like to combine empowerment with orientation to action. Uh, and empowerment for me is important. I don't know everything. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge operation. Uh, I'm just starting in the company and uh, I truly need to rely on the talents, on the knowledge, on the experience uh, of, of my team. So empowering them, but also creating a, a, a good sense of action orientation where we think, we diverge, yeah. we discuss, but we take actions. And it's not about perfection, but it's about progressing, progressing into action. So those are probably three elements of my, of my management style. Okay. Let's talk a bit more about in inclusivity and about the, the um, multinational aspect or the, the international aspect of, uh, of, of, uh, of Heineken. You grew up in Brazil, so you come here to Europe with a certain style and culture and, and, and knowledge. So is it easier for you to be successful in a, in a company with a Dutch origins or is it, is, is it more difficult? I mean, how do you look at that? I would say it's more or less difficult. Uh, it's different and I think it's important that you are mm -hmm. aware. And uh, in, in the different companies are obviously, as you mentioned, uh, Brazil is probably what shaped a lot of who I am. Uh, but through my oh, yeah. previous jobs, I had the pleasure of working with people from Asia. So I had teams based out of Asia with completely different cultures. Uh, for example, working with people from India, I had a super amazing project where I you know, spend uh, time in India and, and learn their culture. And uh, I also learn sometimes some of the challenges of working with them, uh, but how great it is, mm -hmm. uh, the, the people there. Uh, Americas has a bit of a style and Europe has another one. I think I'm privileged because I've been able to, to really you know, know a bit of all of the different cultures. Uh, the Dutch culture has also yeah. some few things which are very particular, uh, the Heineken culture as well. And, and that for me is, is, is the learning that it's important to, to give focus in, in when you join an organization, a new team, to pay attention to this because your style uh, okay. sometimes needs to adapt. And, and how you interact with different people, you have to understand. Sometimes when they say yes, they might not say yes, or sometimes they are too quiet because of the culture, not because they are introverted. And, and I find this fascinating. Uh, it helps learn about myself. Yeah. It helps to, to also to recognize my impact into others. So I, I consider this is, is important to keep a, yeah. an attention. Any leader has to keep an attention on this. Okay. And, and we, we typically think of uh, the advantage of being German is that you're well organized, the advantage of being uh, from Holland is that you're outspoken and, 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 and you're very clear in your communication. How would you describe the advantage of being a Brazilian? What, is the, the, what, what, what brings that culture uh, to, uh, to, to you that makes you successful? First of all, as a joke, I, I used to say I'm Brazilian, but the, the football talent doesn't grow in my family. <laughs> so unfortunately, I don't bring that talent with me. But I, I believe I do bring a few things which uh, in Brazil uh, it's uh, usually known. Uh, first is the, the resilience. Uh, Brazil is, you know, has gone through so many different crises, financially, uh, economic. I think at least the generation that I'm part of has grown with a lot of resilience and a lot of adaptability. Yeah. Adaptability sometimes to face uh, you know, changes in currency, changes in models. And I think that's, that's part of the DNA of Brazilians, uh, uh, which I find uh, very, very good, and, and it's been helpful to me. Uh, I think Brazilians are also super creative. Uh, 
super friendly. Uh, I used to say that in Brazil, yeah. you can actually make a life friend if you just stay a few minutes in a bus stop. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm a bit more introverted, so right. I might not be the average Brazilian, but the average Brazilian will make friends in like in a minute. Uh, and, and that's very helpful, very helpful. Okay, now we talked about your management style. Let's also um, dive a little bit into your leadership style. And, and let's take that question from, you, uh, you worked 15 years at, at BAT. If I would go back there and, and speak to the people that, that worked with you, what do you think that will say about your leadership style? How do you think you were perceived over there as a leader? Uh, I believe they would say, and, and first of all, I, one thing that I'm very happy is that across all these companies that I've worked, I kept strong relationships and still today I can go and, uh, and have and spend some time with some of these people. Some of them worked for me, some of them were my peers. And generally I created those bonds through our working relationship that I still carry today. Uh, so that for me is, is a good, is a positive sign. I believe they will tell me first that I'm a good listener uh, and, and it's truly something that I make uh, time for, to listen to people, to really understand and, and be empathy, uh, use a bit of empathy to put myself in their shoes and understand what is that they are feeling and what is the challenge and so I can uh, coach them in the best way. So I, I, I hope they say they will be a good listener. Uh, they probably will say that I'm a good communicator uh, and that they, um, I use a lot of metaphors to simplify what I can communicate, that I am a good in taking a complex idea and putting it in simple terms. Uh, they might say that some of my metaphors mm -hmm. are too crazy <laughs> and don't work, but hopefully uh, most of them do work. Uh, they probably would say that I'm original, that I bring ideas that no one else or unconventional ideas that others didn't think of. Uh, but some of them I also say that I can sometimes be lost in thought and maybe sometimes you know, give the sense that I'm either disconnected or detached because it's a bit of my style just to you know, be you know, thinking a lot. Uh, so I already you know, heard feedback that I, I, if I don't pay attention, I can you know, be... My wife tells me a lot, for example, I could be lost in thought <laughs> and not really be fully connected. Okay, very interesting because... You also shared with us what is your, your MBTI, your Myers-Briggs personality uh, type. Yeah. And you are the logician, the INTP, and that's somebody who's more introverted, intuitive, thinking, and, and has prospecting personality traits. So, and these are typically flexible thinkers that enjoy taking an unconventional approach to many aspects of life. And, and they often seek out unlikely paths, mixing willingness to experiment with personal creativity. And, and so let's, let's talk about that a little bit, uh, Breno. So, and let's talk, uh, start with these strengths. So the INTP strengths typically are analytical, original, open-minded, curious, and objective as well. So, so do you fully recognize that? And can you maybe give an example of, of how that works in, 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 in your brain? I do. I do. I, I fully recognize those those elements, and uh, uh, it's it's mm -hmm. so powerful uh, that that model. And uh, yeah, so I, I fully recognize myself as as a as a uh, thinker. As I mentioned, I need to be careful mm -hmm. not to be you know sometimes get too immersed that I could feel detached. But uh, 
the, the times that I feel uh, super energized are usually the times where I either trying to uh, fully understand something intellectually complex in, with myself or in groups. Because I also, even though I'm introverted, I love spending time with other people where we can debate, do a bit of blue sky thinking, and, and really charge, challenging the intellectual thinking. Uh, try to find the patterns uh, where problems exist or there. So it, I've, you know, I, I live super energized in those situations. So it's okay. probably one of the examples why I fit so well into a INTP. Let's look at the flip side of things, yeah. and let's look at your at, at the the weakness or, or weaknesses or development points of people with your personality uh, profile. Like you already said, uh, INTPs are uh, have to be careful not to be disconnected. Yeah. Um, uh, they have to be careful with not being insensitive. Sometimes they're um, they're not satisfied. They are quickly dissatisfied if they don't get the results they want. They can be impatient and they can be perfectionist. And of course, these, your wife will tell all of these about you, maybe. I don't know. But so, which ones were for you the strongest and how did you overcome them? Because you cannot be impatient if you're the CIO of, of a big international company. So, which of these did you really have to overcome and how did you do that? Yeah, I would say that probably the one that I, I keep on working to develop so it doesn't become a, a something that impacts me is the impatient, which for me sometimes translate mm -hmm. in impatience, but also could translate into anxiety. Anxiety for, for a problem that is still doesn't have a solution or anxiety because something is still not progressing as I would like to. Those could be the two things. What I try to do is, is first of all, uh, uh, be patient. Be patient, uh, trust my team, trust others, uh, and, and, and also give time. Give time because it's uh, sometimes uh, it's amazing how problems resolve themselves, uh, and you don't necessarily need to to put yourself <laughs> into it. So, patience, a, a bit of, of understanding, and and also recognizing that there are things which are not in my direct control, uh, which is also yeah. I think a very important point. What are the drivers in your professional life? One at the end of the week, you go home. Uh, to your family, when are you content, when are you satisfied to say, this was really a good week? The moments where I feel the biggest, let's say, feeling of joy from my work are, mm -hmm. I think there are a few. One, one, and I probably would summarize this, when I, when I can see that I had uh, uh, truly an impact at someone or mm -hmm. at my business. And what I mean at someone is when I truly can see that I coached or I mentored someone or that person has learned something that has taken them to a next career step or to a next role, and they're truly uh, being recognized for that. And I can see, I, look, I, I had a bit of, of support and help with that. I, I think you know, it, it's one of my greatest uh, sources of, of feeling joy from my work. And, and obviously the other one is when I see uh, uh, something that is truly making a difference for our business, uh, whatever is the technology, but it's truly making our business to move one step ahead. And I can say, look, I was part of that. That really made a difference. Uh, this is where I find, you know, really something rewarding to me. Okay, and Breno, do you have a, you have a personal mantra, a saying, and, and, and how do you use it? Um, I have, you know, more recently, a few years ago, I started to... Uh, to read about Stoic philosophy. 
and, uh, and probably because of my INTP style, uh, th there's a quote that says our, uh, our thoughts uh, make up our life or, or our life is what our thoughts make of. And, and this is a quote from the uh, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, uh, one of the greatest uh, emperors of, of Rome, the empire, which was, he was also a philosopher. And, and for me, it resonates super well because what this means is that uh, the quality of our thoughts has a big impact in the quality of our life. And, and mm -hmm. we have so many things that we can uh, influence directly, uh, but if you try to, uh, uh, you know, if you try to be aware that uh, everything that surrounds you, there are things you can control, but there are things you cannot control. And being aware that there are things you cannot control, but your thoughts and your actions, what is the most important thing you can, it, it actually, it's uh, something that I try to live by. It helps with my, sometimes of my anxiety, of my impatience, uh, and I think it helps in the quality of life. So it's, that's, that would be my mantra. Yeah. So the stoic way of thinking and, and, and being very conscious about your thoughts is not something that comes natural. I mean, that's something that you have to learn in your life, right? It's not something that you already know as a kid. So aside from, well, maybe you, you mentioned books, but where did you really learn how to, well, monitor your thoughts, how to be conscious of, of, of your thinking and make sure that you that you have more positive than the negative thoughts, for instance. Where did you learn I, that? Obviously, I, I, I keep on reading and I keep on trying to learn more about it, but I do exercise meditation mm -hmm. a lot. I do exercise okay. meditation a lot. and, and it, it, it helps me. And I can see when weeks that I, that I can find 15 minutes to meditate on a daily basis, I can see the positive impact in myself. Weeks that maybe my agenda doesn't allow me to do, I can see that I end up at the end of the week feeling a bit more tired with, with a bit less energy. So the, the meditation for me uh, is super helpful. Even if it's 10, 15 minutes a day, it has an amazing impact. Okay. And, and where did, when did you start that? And, and when, is that something in the morning or in the evening? What's the practical implementation of that? I'm, I'm just very curious how, that, how you do that because it's, it seems to help you a lot. It is, it is not, not in the morning. I'm, I'm a morning person, so I usually, my morning is where I have my highest energy. So what I try to do in the mornings is I try to exercise. I try to start with the biggest challenges of my day because I can see that, you know, that's, that's the time of the day that my energy is, is, uh, is the largest. I like to meditate mm -hmm. whenever possible at some break during the day, you know, around lunchtime mm -hmm. because it, it almost gives me a, 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 that interval where I can almost uh, relax and, and prepare for the second half of, the, uh, of my day. Okay, very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about, let's go one step deeper in this leadership deep dive and, and let's talk about your core values. And, uh, and you shared with us that you have two children, two boys, 13, 15 years old. So that must be wonderful age if they're still behaving. And I hope so. So what are, what are the core values that you're passing on to, the to your children? How do you want to see them grow up? Uh, look, I think being, being a father, you know, uh, raising children is an amazing gift uh, and a responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm lucky that with my wife, Alessandra, we shared common values. And, and we try and we are very aligned with the values that we, uh, we, uh, we try to live by 
to, to our boys. Uh, mm -hmm. And they are things like honesty, uh, they are kindness to other people, uh, they are being uh, resilient and also being persistent to achieve what they want. And uh, my, you know, my, what I like the most is that my boys, they find what is their passion and they persist to, mm -hmm. to, uh, to do what they love the most. It's not easy, but I try to, you know, we try to bring this. And they are becoming teenagers, so they, they not necessarily listen as they, they would listen more when they were before. So it's a lot about finding those really special moments with them uh, or just to live by example, to, to, to show them and to live by those values. It's, it's what I try to do myself yeah. and my wife. Now, in your personal life, your professional life, who is it that you look up to? Who are the mentors in your life? And, and can you give an example of what you have learned? Yeah, sure. I, I, well, first of all, I, I had so many great leaders that I had the privilege to work with. And, uh, and from each one of them, I, what I try to do is, is understand and see whether they are so good. Some of them were so good in communication. Some of them were great in, in courage and being bold. So I try to almost copy some of their capabilities. But if I had to pick one example, because I think that's the, mm -hmm. for me the biggest and the one that I look the most, it's my father. And I'll tell you this story of, of mm -hmm. why. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned to you, my father is uh, who, the one who put a computer in front of me for the first time when I was between 10 and yeah. 15 years old. And, and the reason why he did it is because he was an engineer. He is an engineer uh, and he's still in Brazil. Uh, and he was very entrepreneurial. He, has his, he had his engineering company. Uh, and as a child, I would look up to my father, very proud, look, this is you know, my father, he has his own company. Sometimes he would invite me to go into the office, I would play with the, uh, with the things over there. Uh, and, and he was also a very uh, innovative uh, person because he started to bring those personal computers and he had those Apple III computers and Apple IIs to help the engineers to make calculations in some of the projects that he worked with. Uh, so that is something that I actually put a lot of, of, of my style. But also I'm super proud of him because of his resilience. And I told you about the nice, the nice part, which he had his own company, but there was a moment in the Brazil because of the economic crisis, governments, his company was super leveraged on government contracts. And then there was a point that government stopped paying. Cutting a long story short, the company went bankrupt. And, and that was a super difficult period of our life. Uh, economically, we had to make sacrifices. He had to completely uh, reinvent his career. And he had to, you know, from being an entrepreneur, owner of a business, to go and work for another company. And he always was resilient and always was super dedicated and always was, uh, you know, super successful in the things he did. So if I can be a bit of, of his, uh, have a bit of his resilience and entrepreneurship, I'm, I'm blessed. So that, that's the, the guy that I look up to. If you look back at your, let's say, professional career, you've, I mean, you've built quite a successful career so far already, but we all make our mistakes. Yeah. So looking back, could you share with us what was uh, of the mistakes, the failures that you, um, of course, made? What was the most brilliant failure and, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, I think in, in uh, I watched some of the other interviews and that's almost like a common theme across uh, the, the interviews of CIOs <laughs> is that projects, 
I think everyone has lived one or, or a few projects that failed. I think that's, that's part of our, yep. and, and, uh, and I, I, I had the same. And I think over time you develop almost this uh, sixth sense or a gut feeling that mm -hmm. just in the first, I don't know, weeks, you look at a project and you have that gut feeling that mm, this, is, <laughs> this is not going to work well. And my story is I, I had a project and I was in BAT. Uh, I had a project where I had this gut feeling that something was not right, but I didn't have enough courage to stop or change. Uh, it, was, it was a project that was about taking a, a small local system from one of the South American uh, countries and make it global. So the mandate is take this system, make it global, implement in this uh, first country in Europe because they have a really important business change coming up. You know, there was a tight schedule uh, and in strategy was beautiful. But the reality was system technically was super weak. The knowledge about it was contained in a very small partner. And the, the big partner that we wanted to do the knowledge transfer wasn't ready. Uh, it required collaboration across teams which are not fully engaged. So all the signs that something was not going to work well were there. But I was so focused on, on the objective, but I, I sh and I, I suffered a lot uh, because in, uh, probably in, in my gut feeling, I, I knew that something had to change, but I didn't do those changes. Uh, mm -hmm. And it ended up in, in not working well, they had to completely take a different system, and, and life uh, uh, wasn't easy at that point. But for me it was a learning because a few years later, I actually was, uh, took a, a very similar project to lead, but this time even bigger mm -hmm. in a global scope. And first few months, I started to notice these very similar signs. But because I had the previous experience, I didn't hesitate. I said, look, we need to change this, this, this. We made lots of changes. We changed architecture, we changed partner, we changed ways of working. <laughs> We took a hit because, you know, it was a big, big project there. Uh, we had to almost take a six months fully uh, uh, to, to fully reposition the project. But I am confident that if we haven't done it, it wouldn't be successful as it was after making all those changes. So that was my, my failure, but I'm so happy that I learned from that failure and I had the opportunity to almost do a similar initiative and, and apply what I've learned from that one. In your, and let's maybe focus a bit more on, on personal life, what is the, the best thing that has ever happened to you? Uh, uh, wow, that, that's probably the, there's the cliche things, you know, uh, uh, finding my <laughs> wife and having my kids, uh, but maybe, you know, picking something that is a, a bit of profession and a bit of personal life is, uh, I find that, you know, coming to live in a different country, the experience as a family of, you know, live in Brazil, mm -hmm. live in UK, and, and I, I first came to live in UK 2013. Uh, initially, it was, at least for, uh, for my uh, younger son, uh, the, the adaptation was tough, but we learned so much. And, and after one year, everyone was in love, and then everyone was uh, really, and the family became closer together. So the experience of living in a different country. Uh, it has disadvantages, you know, my parents are in Brazil and I miss them so much, but it has, you know, had a, such yeah. an amazing impact in my life. And I can see that it will have an impact in my children as well. 
So I think I would say it's not the best, but it's one of the best things that happened in my life. Okay. And in your life, what is it that you fear most and what is it that you love most? Probably remembering my wife, if they love the most, she probably will say is that watching my Brazilian football team, Flamengo, to win the championship. <laughs> she would say that's, that's my irrational uh, part of me, which, you know, uh, if you ask me, I probably prefer to see my local Flamengo team to win even more than my Brazil national championship. <laughs> Uh, national wow. team. Okay. Uh, it's a super irrational thing. So football is still a, is still a religion in Brazil then, it right? It is. I don't, I don't have the talent to play, but I, but I love to watch my, my local team. Uh, so maybe it's one of the things that I love the most. But I, I, love, I love spending time with people that, that I liked. I love spending time with some friends, mm -hmm. with my family, just having a good time, having a good conversation. Uh, I, I really like. Uh, I, I used to have a couple of friends uh, I love music, uh, playing music. My, my brother actually is the one that you know, pushed me to learn, play the guitar. And uh, I had a band a few years okay. ago. Uh, and Serious? I think, yeah, not a professional, definitely. Uh, but we did, a, we did you know, two or three gigs. Uh, and it was one of those magical moments that I still remember today. That's, uh, I mean... Making music together is magic, eh, right? It is magic. It is magic. So, uh, yeah, so. We, we, keep, we keep together and we, we tried during the pandemic to record uh, remotely. Uh, it worked uh, and it was super fun to do. So I think that's probably some of the things that I love, that I love the most. Uh, in terms of fear, uh, I think probably my, I think the greatest fear is that something could happen to my, to my boys that really impact their lives in a mm -hmm. negative way, whether it's a health or something more serious. I think that's, that's the, the major fear that I would have, really. So, Benno, I would already like to thank you for uh, spending the time uh, with us here and sharing all your visions and your experiences. Um, our videos that we publish on, on YouTube and all channels are watched also by ambitious future digital leaders. Uh, and so, with your experience, uh, so what is the advice that you would give them to become as successful as you are and to follow in your uh, footsteps? Thank you, Hendrik. It was a pleasure to, to speak with you. And, and if, you know, for, for those watching this, uh, I think there's two, two things I would put as an advice. Uh, and, and the first one mm -hmm. is to find, find your passion. And particularly when you're young, be patient. Take the time, experiment as many things as you can. It's the best time in, in, in your life to really do this, this experimentation, try different jobs, and really pay attention to where you find your energy, where are the, 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 the things that you do, that time becomes something that is irrelevant. It's, it's the concept of flow. So I, I I'm really yeah. believe that when you find this, it's super. And, and there's, a, there's a second thing which for me is a compliment, which is you have to believe in yourself because that journey of finding your passion requires you to believe in yourself a lot. And, and then one last thing, which is in addition to believe in yourself, is to keep one or two or three, whatever, but at least one person that believes in you because there will be moments where you stop believing in yourself. And then that person that believes in you will come and you bring you back. So those, those will be my, my two advices. Okay. And on that note, Breno, thank you so much. I look forward to meeting you one day in Amsterdam and to have a beer together with you. 
Thank you so much and see you soon. Thank you, Henry. Definitely. Thank you so much. Take care.